Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, the 25th of September, 2012, and our special guest is Ron Richhart, the author of Making Thinking Visible, or one of the authors. Ron, thanks for being here. Hi, I'm glad to be here, Steve. Really delightful to have you here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am on my Hack Your Education tour, learning lots of really fun things, holding community conversations around education, some of which are now going to be informed by this book. The Learning 2.0 conference recordings are up and all available at learning20.com. Next week, so exciting, the Future of Libraries Conference, our second year, San Jose State University is the founding sponsor. That's the third through the fifth at library2012.com. Currently 150 sessions scheduled, many keynotes, 24 hours a day for two days. Should just be a blast. Again, it's all free. And then in November, the Global Education Conference. If you haven't been a part of this before, you really want to find out about this. We're still accepting presentations. It's five days, 24 hours a day, worldwide, and just a blast. So that's at globaleducationconference.com or globaledcon.com. Tomorrow is the uh, session I've really been looking forward to, the true history of the MOOC with uh, this gang of folks who have a lot to say about what, how the MOOC was originally created and, and how it's different in its currently publicized format. Uh, Tom Vander Ark joins us on Thursday for a look at his book, Getting Smart. Then we have Library 2.012 conference. Then Blake Bowles will talk about his book, Better Than College. Denise Pope from Stanford on her program, Challenge Success. Kirsten Olson on her book, Wounded by School. Susie Boss on her new book, Bringing Innovation to School, and lots more. At futureofeducation.com, you can see the schedule. There's actually a Google Calendar there you can link to if you like having that in your own calendar. Last night, we had two fascinating sessions. Uh, Nick Hill-Goyal talked about his book, One Size Does Not Fit All. This is a 17-year-old, maybe now 18-year-old student who wrote an incredibly impressive book. Zach Malamed led a student voice panel as part of a follow-up to an Education Nation session. Really worth listening to. The recording of that is up as well. Uh, fascinating view of uh, a, a student panel that was led off by non-students. Uh, and they were quite candid in their criticisms. Bob Glinner and Dana McCauley, Dana McCauley talked to us about place-based education. That was really fun. Anyway, lots, lots up there. Over 300 sessions all recorded in the Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. So this is when we give you a chance to let us know where you're participating from. If this is your first time, you want to be looking for some icons to the left of the map. You're looking for the star icon, and you click on that twice to get the star, and then you click on the map. I'm currently in what is still beautiful and sunny Seattle, not my home, but coming to you through the courtesy of Hotel Wireless and, and hoping it stays. Look at this fun craft. Feel free to put a chat note, a note in the chat. Uh, it looks like uh, New Zealand, Australia. I'm going to be in Australia in February doing an Educator 2.0 tour. That's lots of fun we'll be announcing this week. And hope to visit uh, Gordon Dryden in New Zealand. Anybody else who wants to have some fun getting together, let me know. The original MOOCers, well, tune in tomorrow night and we'll hear the whole story. I'm not sure I know the whole story. Looks like Brazil. 
Oi, Brazil, tudo bem? If I were more of a polyglot, I would shout out a response. Oh, Bill Ulrich, that must be you in the Philippines, right? Anyway, wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. I do recommend that you pull the chat window out. If you go to the top of the chat box, you can actually double-click on the top and drag it out. Or you can look for the little menu box, the drop-down, and detach the panel. That panel comes out. If you, if you lose it or it gets behind something else and you want to recover, you can go to View, Restore Default Layout. But otherwise, uh, it's nice to have that. So it makes it a little bit easier to see the chat. So thanks to Mighty Bell. We do have a Mighty Bell space for this session. That's a place to collect resources and continue the conversation if you'd like to do so. I'm going to put that in the chat right now. If you haven't played with Mighty Bell, it is Gina Bianchini's newest project. She was behind Ming. And I am consulting for them on this as, as an education specialist. They're providing this for free to educators. So hopefully you'll find it of use and value. I actually really love it. As well, I loved your book, Ron. So thanks for that. Well, thanks, Steve. I wanted to tell you a quick story. When I was in college, my dad came to visit. And we were uh, in Boston. I think we actually went to Harvard to watch uh, a rowing regatta. And I remember standing on a bridge, and he said to me, Steve, you think about thinking. He said, when I was your age, I never thought about thinking. But I'm not sure that was a fair statement for him. I mean, he went to a liberal arts college, and, and I'm sure he thought about thinking. This is not a new tradition, right? Well, lots of people have been thinking about thinking over the, the years. I, I think in terms of making it more explicit for students, making it more explicit for teachers, um, you know, it, it is kind of a, a new thing. I think there's a lot more kind of emphasis on the role of, you know, people being metacognitive, people being metastrategic, um, and so that has increased. Is it, um, I feel like there is a tie, though, to, to the liberal arts tradition. Which, which allowed us to kind of gain perspective on our thinking and to overcome, you know, potential biases and, and provincialism. Did, uh, do you make that connection, or is, is that a stretch? Um, I, don't, I, um, I wouldn't say that I necessarily make that connection with, with just kind of liberal arts. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, kind of going back to, to people like Dewey, um, you know, how really talked about the importance of reflection, the importance of developing habits of mind, um, kind of goes back, I think, well, to good. that. I'm, I'm glad to be uh, pushed back on. I loved the David Perkins story at, uh, in the forward, this idea that uh, he heard what was half a conversation of somebody on a cell phone, and that this is often true even when we're speaking to others, that we're only hearing half the conversation because the other half is in our head or someone else's head. Um, can, can we kind of use that as a jumping off point to sort of the central importance uh, of thinking to learning? Um, sure. Yeah. The idea that, you know, I think one of the, the core ideas that, you know, has really, you know, shifted over the years is that the teachers have moved
away from thinking that teaching is merely a matter of kind of dispensing information, dispensing um, knowledge. And instead, it's really a two-way street in that in order to um, assist and facilitate someone's learning, you have to have a better understanding of where they are at mentally, how you can um, support that, how you can um, ask the right questions going to move that forward to that. So when it's only that kind of one-way street, that one-sided conversation, um, we make a lot of false assumptions. Um, we often we can assume that everyone is with us when they aren't. We can assume that understanding is happening when it isn't. Um, we can assume that a lot of learning is going on, um, and it may not be. So by making students thinking more visible, it's helping to kind of demystify that process for us. Yeah, and maybe this isn't the right place to start with the whole conversation. But the other piece that seems to be sort of evident in, in the body of your work is that we may not even be realizing that there's only half a conversation. And that's important both for students and for educators. I'm sorry, you're cutting all out on me, Steve. I'm not hearing your question. Yeah, I'm sorry that that's the case. I am seeing that there's a general slowdown all of us in the audio. You can see those little red dots next to the microphones. And I'm not quite sure why that is. It may be, Ron, that you're still, again, I'm not going to presume that it's your internet connection, but by virtue of the fact that everybody else has those red dots except you, it may well be. Um, why would there be any debate about thinking as being central to learning? Well, I don't think that there really is um, any debate about that. I think that where um, the debate comes in and where issues begin to arise is that teachers um, at all levels feel a lot of pressure in terms of, of covering content. And we can kind of lull ourselves into this, again, illusion that learning is happening as long as we're talking, as long as we're covering the content. And so the issues become, well, how much of a role do I play in facilitating that thinking um, and engaging okay. kids with so the content putting in up a different display. way. It looks like it's coming in and out, but uh, we th I think we can keep moving forward and I can hear you pretty clearly. So um, let's talk about kind of the, the history here because I'm not personally familiar with visible thinking and the cultures of thinking projects. Can you kind of describe the progression for us? Ron, I don't see your microphone on. Um, can you hear me now? I can. Great. The kind of the, the history of, of this work goes back about 25 years at Project Zero, part of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We've had long had kind of a research program looking at the development of dispositions, thinking dispositions, things like curiosity, uh, open-mindedness, healthy skepticism, being strategic, those kinds of things. Um, other people have talked about those. Um, and kind of a, a core idea 
of that is that dispositions can't be directly taught. That you know you can't teach a, a unit on, on curiosity or um, being a risk taker. And instead, what you have to do is you have to enculturate those dispositions. They're developed over time. And that's where the idea of kind of developing a culture of thinking um, comes from. And so what we've done over the past um, seven years in the Culture of Thinking Project is work with a number of schools around the world, um, schools and school districts really thinking about, well, how is it that we can create a culture in which um, the development of dispositions can really flourish so and take hold? visible thinking after the Cultures of Thinking Project? The, um, a little bit more about kind of the history of that. Then in, in 1998, um, sponsored by um, the Spencer Foundation, I did research in classrooms where, where teachers were very adept at kind of getting students to think at nurturing these dispositions to really understand what the teachers were doing. And as a result of that, came up with this framework for looking at um, how do we understand group and organizational culture from that. After that research, then with my colleagues um, David Perkins and Shari Tishman, we began work in Sweden. And we, we began kind of taking the ideas of, um, that I had kind of picked up from that research. And a core idea was that the, the teachers that I observed, I observed these teachers for an entire year, those teachers didn't once teach a thinking skills lesson. Instead, what I noticed was that those teachers used routines and structures to help support students in their thinking. And so we took that idea of routines and from that developed um, a lot of what we call thinking routines then, because all teachers have routines. Um, you know, there are routines for management. There are routines for housekeeping chores. Um, there are always routines for learning. But the idea that you would have routines to facilitate and help to structure the thinking was kind of a new idea. So we took that and really built um, a set of routines. And they became a really great place for teachers to really start on this work. And we, we call that visible thinking. Since then, we've had other projects. So there's an artful thinking project that Shari Tishman and Patricia Palmer direct. And then the Cultures of Thinking project built on that idea. And, and really took it, of the, um, book the next step began to bringing in kind of these, these eight cultural forces the book by talking about to how really think about how do we kind of create that culture. And, and describe a little bit of the problem of uh, using Bloom's taxonomy or any taxonomy to kind of describe levels of thinking. And and then you move into this idea that understanding is a result of the, the other activities. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, you know, when, when I lead workshops and, and work with teachers and I ask them, you know, um, about thinking and what kinds of thinking are going on in your classroom, the, 
you know, sometimes they're a little bit puzzled. The next question is often, well, you know, do you mean Bloom's taxonomy? And that's one of the things which most teachers are, are taught in teacher training. They're taught about Bloom's taxonomy, and they're, they're also taught that that's a hierarchy. And the, the problem with this whole idea that thinking is hierarchical, that their thinking moves, is it ignores the fact that we always think with content. And so, you know, um, to describe and notice um, something very, you know, complex as a result of an experiment that one's done in chemistry isn't a low-level task just because you're observing. And to evaluate, to evaluate whether your paper airplane flies isn't necessarily a higher order kind of um, mode of thinking. So you have to, can't really divorce that from the content. And different thinking moves um, get used in different contexts. Probably the, the biggest kind of objection that I raised to Bloom's taxonomy was this idea that understanding was a kind of thinking. Um, we understanding is really a goal of thinking. Understanding is an outcome of thinking. It's not a kind of thinking. So there are kinds of thinking that help to facilitate understanding, but understanding itself um, isn't a kind of thinking. And so in the book, we kind of lay out, well, what are some key thinking moves around understanding? And that, that framework, we often refer to that kind of as the understanding map, um, includes kind of eight different types of thinking. And those thinking moves um, are useful to teachers as they begin to kind of plan units, trying to teach for understanding as they begin to assess students. So I want to get to and the they also really kind of describe um, the so toolkit, like which are, are the thinking routines, all of those thinking routines are linked to those thinking moves. Because it feels like that's in parallel here with the teachers coming to their own understanding of this material end of thinking. Uh, is that, does that seem appropriate? Um, yes. Yeah. So if, if we think about, you know, understanding as a goal that we want to achieve, then we have to begin to think about, well, you know, what are the tools for achieving that goal? And um, if we think about, you know, from our students' perspective, we want our students also, you know, not just to understand material, but we also want to give them the tools to develop their future understanding. And so by kind of demystifying this process about what are the thinking moves which one can employ to help to develop understanding, you know, we, we give the students um, and all learners the tools that they need. Ron, we've been doing okay, but you pause there for just a minute where there's a lag. You can see all those yellow dots again. We're, we're catching up to hearing you. Um, so um, to, before we get to the thinking moves, you, you talk about the purposes of thinking and why is it that we want students to think, um, sort of starting with this idea that schools have been focused on content delivery and training as part of the uh, industrial model. Um, and then you do this, uh, I love the exercise of comparing the activities that are being done in class regularly with the discipline's uh, actual actions or their educator's own actions that they remember from when they were actively engaged in understanding something within their discipline. Um, do, how do you find that teachers respond to this at, at different levels? And is, it, is there any way to sort of categorize how most respond? Well, 
that exercise is very interesting and it can be um, illuminating and part of the reason for that exercise is, is to try to think about are we really giving our students authentic learning? And so, again, by looking at the kinds of things that we do when we're trying to understand the kinds of things that are actually done in the discipline, both of those are trying to kind of capture um, what is authentic learning. And, you know, some subject areas do better with that than others within that. I, I often use that um, with mathematics teachers. I was a mathematics teacher for years. And you know, when teachers look at that, they often okay, so begin to the recognize that the kinds of things they're asking of, students to do um, aren't and, the kinds of things and, and really so this build. Is, these would be the things in particular for serving understanding, knowing that there are others. But do you want to describe sort of in general what they are? Sure. Um, so in developing this, uh, my colleagues, David Perkins and Sherry Tishman, myself, kind of set ourselves the goal of trying to identify not all of the kinds of thinking that we could, but really a small list of key thinking moves that seemed necessary for understanding. So the test is really, if you pulled one of these out, could you really say that you understood? So for example, being able to describe what's there, being able to describe you know, the parts and the pieces and the various aspects of what it is you're trying to understand. So that seems a very necessary component. Um, being able to make connections. So the connections between what you're trying to understand and things you already know, um, connections to things outside of the subject area and discipline also seems quite necessary. Being able to look at things from different viewpoints or different perspectives within that. So that's kind of broadening the scope and really kind of working your way around whatever it is you're trying to understand. So a necessary component there. Um, Part of that understanding process is building explanations, interpretations, theories, hypotheses, those kinds of things as well. So that idea of building explanations, trying to understand what's going on, what's really happening. And being able to back that up with evidence, so reasoning with evidence within that. And then finally, the sixth one in our original list was the idea of being able to kind of, you know, capture the heart, distill the essence, kind of form some conclusions around that. Being able to say, well, what is this really all about. And so those, those six um, became our original ones. And then we added two more. The idea of wondering, recognizing that, um, you know, being curious and asking questions are, is often a driver of understanding. But it's also more than that. Um, if it had just been that, we probably would have left it out. But adding it in was recognizing that the process of developing understanding is an ongoing process of asking yourself new questions. Um, people rarely um, would say that they understand everything about anything. And there's still new questions, new things that they're wondering about. So recognizing that's an ongoing process. And then the eighth one that we added was the idea of uncovering complexity. 
um, making sure that one has kind of gone below the surface, kind of looking about where are their issues, um, where are their kind of tensions, where is their um, this complex richness in what it is we're trying to understand. Well, really so those are the eight thinking moves that then we looked at how do we design um, some thinking routines to facilitate students, help to kind of structure the learning the around I'm wondering if I might moves. call you back by telephone and bring you in by telephone, which I think will make this better. Would that be something we could do? If you want to email me your tell, that took about a minute for me to hear your response. So if you want to email me your phone number, I'll, I'll uh, bring you in by phone. And feel free to just stay in the room, but we'll do the audio by phone. That way you can see people's comments. And again, I apologize. I'm um, sure. I wouldn't I would assume it was a, an issue with the system, except that everybody else is having the same difficulty hearing you. So I'll, if I can, I'll just give you a call right back. of you are welcome to chat a little. This will take about 60 seconds, so it won't be long, but I think it will make things better. And I'm sure that Ron is frustrated, and I'm uh -huh. sure you are as well, hearing the conversation like like it has. This is a terrific book. I can't wait to, to talk about okay. it without the delay. All right. Ron, go ahead and turn your microphone off if you would. Your audio is a little bit lower because you're coming in by phone, but I'm going to try and turn it up from this side. And if you can speak up, that would be great. All right. Oh, lovely. It's, it's nice to actually be talking to you without feeling like okay. you're battling a lag. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm not sure what. So you make it, uh, no, it's some kind of a bandwidth issue. So uh, but, but those uh, six plus two thinking moves, are specific to understanding. And you also introduced the idea that there can be other uh, um, 
other goals of thinking, like problem solving or making decisions or forming judgment, that would have different thinking moves, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, so th these, we felt, kind of played a really central role in, um, in much of what teachers do. But of course, you know, problem solving is also um, you know, something there. So thinking moves like being able to generate options and being able to you know, develop a plan, those kinds of thinking moves are also important. Okay, so uh, we've talked about uh, sort of how the teachers have responded. You do even use the word in the book that, that, that sometimes teachers are stumped when you ask them what kinds of thinking do they value and do they want to promote. Um, and you use that as kind of a, a springboard to the importance of being clear about what kinds of thinking we want our students to do and then to be able to plan and create opportunities. Um, is this happening in the teacher colleges at all? I mean, is it, is that, does, is it fair to kind of go back and say, are they experiencing this themselves in their own preparation? Well, um, I mean, it is happening some places. Um, in addition to my um, position at, at Harvard, um, I'm also a fellow at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And in um, the teacher education program there, the students are learning about um, this and learning kind of to use thinking routines and learning to kind of highlight thinking and to plan lessons around that. You know, I think once again, we're, we're very used to kind of looking at content and then we think about, well, how is it that I deliver this content? Sometimes we think about issues of engagement, which of course are important. How do I engage kids with this content? But we very rarely look at, well, what kinds of thinking do I need students to do in this lesson? And if we can't identify the kinds of thinking that we want students to do in the lesson, then we're kind of leaving it to chance. We're hoping that students will do the kind of thinking that will lead to understanding. And you know, that's not our best teaching. So being able to kind of plan our lessons and being able to look at an individual lesson and say, well, what kinds of thinking do I need to um, have students be doing with this content that's going to help them in terms of building that understanding? Then we can be very proactive in terms of nurturing that kind of thinking. And, and thinking routines are just one way. It's not the only way of making the thinking visible and supporting um, the thinking within that. So um, some teachers are, are learning it. Um, you know, of course, you've got a really um, diverse country, diverse world of lots of different kind of educational systems. So it's um, kind of hit and miss in different places. What's the importance of teachers modeling the understanding or the thinking routines themselves for, uh, in their own learning? Well, the, the modeling of thinking is really important in terms of helping to, to nurture and develop students' thinking dispositions within that. that um, one of my favorite quotes from Vygotsky is, children grow into the intellectual life around them. And so thinking about that we as teachers are important models for students and being able to kind of model our thinking. So do students see our passion, our curiosity? Do they see us reflecting on our learning? Um, do they see us making connections? And so by being very explicit about that and making our own thinking visible in the classroom, then we're providing students with an important model that then they can also kind of use themselves within that. 
Okay, and then, so you're describing also uh, not only opportunities for thinking for students, but also making the students thinking visible, and that's sort of the core, right, of the of the practice. So, how does visibility serve both the learning and the teaching? Well, some of the things that making the thinking visible to us does is it really helps us to understand where learners are at, how they are putting ideas together, how they are making sense of this information um, in front of them, how they are making sense of these ideas that they are being presented with. And so um, when we make their thinking visible, we get a window into that. Sometimes that helps us to uncover um, misconceptions or preconceptions or alternative conceptions that students might have, and then we are able to address that. It also provides us an insight into really some of the incredible thoughtfulness that um, the students that we have are bringing to these ideas and that may open up a very kind of rich discussion that may take learning and advanced learning much further if we're able to kind of capitalize on that. So when we've made the thinking much more visible, we are able to really direct the instruction um, to really address the learner's needs much better. I think the other thing that um, we have to recognize about the importance of making thinking visible is that that's really the only way that we can assess understanding. You know, we've got lots of tools in, um, for being able to assess knowledge and skills, and, and they're relatively straightforward in terms of being able to assess does someone have this knowledge, does someone um, have this skill. Um, not much of a difficulty there, but when it comes to understanding, that's a much more difficult thing um, to be able to assess. And so part of the understanding is about um, not just does someone you know, know some content, but how are they putting this content together? How are they making those connections? And so we have to make their thinking visible to give us a window into their level of understanding. You, you have a section where you um, describe, it looks like one, two, three, four, five different ways of making the invisible visible. This is prior to getting to the thinking routines. And, and some of them just were lovely, uh, like the, yeah, but what's the other story? Uh, or what makes you say that? Um, do you, you want to describe a little bit sort of the, the, the core of the ideas here of, of what teachers can do? Well, in terms of making the thinking visible, you know, one of the, the ways that teachers have always done that is through the questioning that they um, have with students. And one of the things that we've found has, you know, that it's just an incredibly useful and simple question is, what makes you say that? And that has to, that question works when it's not said in a um, kind of confrontational mode, but when it comes from a place of genuine curiosity. And the difference it makes is really you know, quite astounding. So instead of just taking someone's reply at face value, um, following up with what makes you say that is, gives us a window into, well, what is their reasoning behind that? What are the ideas that kind of gave you know, birth to the, the comment which we just heard? So a very kind of simple way um, of uncovering that. You know, I think that one of the, the key things that um, we found in, in classrooms is making students thinking visible has to come from a genuine place of, of curiosity and interest from the teacher. You know, you can do these routines, you can you know ask questions, but students are very adept at knowing 
do we really want to know the answer to the questions we're asking? Do we, are we really interested in their thinking? And once we show an interest, a genuine interest in another person, in, in their ideas, and in, in their thoughts, we get so much more from them. Um, and we see that all the time in classrooms. I, I think the story is from you in the book where you've given sort of instruction in this regard or talked about it, and then people have sort of written down, or they've watched you and written down what you, the questions you asked, and then they'll come back and say, well, I asked the same questions, but I, I didn't get the same responses. Was that your story? Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, for several years, um, while I was still teaching, I used to do kind of model teaching in terms of mathematics. I would go into people's classrooms and teach a lesson, and, and other teachers would kind of you know watch me um, teach. And, and this happened to be at a point where we kind of go through some of these waves in education where people were very interested in asking good questions, and so I was kind of very aware of you know the questions I was asking, and um, and teachers were also very aware of the questions I was asking, and I often got from from principals from other teachers um, the question about questions, which was, well, you know, how do you come up with your questions? And I was always stumped by that. I was like, you know, gee, I, <laughs> I must have some way of coming up with this. And then I finally realized, you know, it, it's really about listening to students' answers. And when teachers just copied down the questions that I asked and then, you know, kind of did them, uh, it, you know, we see that today in many kind of scripted programs which teachers um, are forced to use, you know, that the questions are there. But if they don't come from a genuine place and we aren't genuinely interested in the answers, then it's very difficult to ask those follow-up questions. But when we're really listening to what students say, then the dialogue, the, the discussion, the conversation takes on a very rich life because it's in, always in response to what students are saying. And, and that's where learning begins to really move forward. Yeah, and it occurred to me in reading that section that that probably comes with increased confidence in the role of the educator in sort of eliciting this um, thinking about thinking, right? I'm, I'm sorry, can you say that one more time, Steve? Well, it seems like that your ability to actually listen is probably in large part your time and confidence in doing this and getting constructive results. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a factor, but I also think that another factor is you know, having a, a genuine interest and curiosity in our students. You know, one of the, um, the things that, that we know and that has been written about by, by many people is the importance of our interactions with students, our relationships with students. And basically, our students kind of want to be known. And so part of listening is one way that we validate students, one way that we show an interest in them, one way that we um, help to, to know them. And I think that a lot of that really comes from that very genuine place of being interested in our students. I, I love that. Um, I also loved the, the use of your word, the word generative there in, in that section of the book where you talk about helping to generate inquiry and discovery and kind of seeing that as the goal. Yeah, um, that's one of our very common words at, at Project Zero. We use that word a lot. 
Um, it is a great word. The, the root there of generative, of course, is to generate and to think about that, um, you know, in our classrooms we want to have, you know, generative topics that we study, topics that really take us somewhere, that generate interest, that generate enthusiasm. We want to have generative conversations, conversations that move the ideas forward. Um, and so um, thinking about, and we want to ask, you know, generative questions as well, too, that are going to help, again, to kind of propel learning. So thinking about this forward momentum is really important. And also in this section, uh, as, a, as a parent, I just sort of mark this as sort of a big life lesson. You talk about the what makes you say that question, and then how students will pick up on that both um, in using the questions themselves, the same question themselves, but also in kind of knowing in advance what to answer as that question continues to be used. Yeah, one of the things that we, we see, um, you know, in classrooms where that question becomes you know, used, and that, that's, that's really a, a great example of, of the idea of a routine. It's, you know, a routine is nothing more than, you know, this is the way we do things. And so when a teacher is very used to kind of responding to students' comments with what makes you say that, then students very quickly pick up on, oh, in this classroom, answers aren't enough. It's answers with evidence. And it doesn't take very long before, you know, students really pick up. And when I say not very long, I mean, with, with secondary students, it can be, you know, within a single period, they'll pick up on, uh, this is how you respond to that with younger kids takes a little bit longer, but um, it happens incredibly quickly when students kind of recognize that answers alone aren't enough. It's answers with justification, with evidence. And that's one of the things when people come into some of the classrooms where, where teachers have been building a culture of thinking, that's one of the, the first things that they notice is that students talk differently. They aren't just kind of giving answers, but teachers are also asking different questions. They're expecting evidence, you know, if, and if students aren't giving that, then they're following up with what makes you say that. And that becomes part of the fabric of the classroom. You talk about, um how using these sort of consistent practices and respecting students' thinking uh, often leads to students uh, who haven't been performing well before performing. The, the subtitle of the book talks about independence for all learners, and there are a couple of places in the book where you sort of specifically mention the importance of learners becoming independent and capable of directing and managing their own uh, cognitive actions or learning. I was intrigued why that might not be sort of the center argument or thought of the book. I kept thinking, doesn't it all come back to a view of, of education or public education as being a way of helping create independent learners? You know, I think the, the notion of independent learners, I mean, if you were to, to go around, you know, to schools and ask groups of teachers, that would be very high on the list within that. Um, and when I talk with teachers about what dispositions they value, um, independence, risk-taking, um, you know, those kinds of things come up quite a lot. And then if you kind of step back and say, yeah, this is something that we, you know, care about and value, you naturally then have to ask yourself, well, where is it that we're creating opportunities for that independence? What are we doing to really develop that independence? 
in that and, and that's where things begin to break down we may not actually we you know a lot of um, schools actually develop greater dependence um, of their students um, again in um, some data from um, Australia is that um, many of the very selective um, private schools where students score very well on tests and then um, you know get into you know, places in, in university um, they actually found that there's a huge problem with those students dropping out because they actually haven't learned how to learn because that the teachers have actually you know made the student quite dependent on their help and their assistance and their, their nurturing and they're not then finding that at university level so we do really have to think about you know, if we care about this, how is it that we're really developing that independence? And then when it comes down to the issue of how thinking gets linked to this, it comes back to the broader issue about, well, you know, why is it that we should kind of care about this? And, and or, you know, haven't we always done this? Haven't we always asked kids to think? And, and the reality is, that you know, of course, students have always been thinking, and particularly you know, the best students have always been very adept at thinking. But part of what we want to do is to demystify that process for students. We want to make that explicit. That's what the thinking routines do, um, and the thinking routines ultimately become tools that students use. And that's where the independence comes from. That when students are recognizing that these are tools that help them. Um, to structure and to scaffold and to support their own thinking, then that's where we see students really developing independence. And I would say that one of the, the biggest misconceptions that, that um, teachers have kind of around the thinking routines is they look at them and say, oh, these are great tools for me as a teacher to use in the classroom. And they are, but ultimately the goal is that students begin to take them over as tools and that's where the real power lies and that's where we that's where the independence lies is when students begin to kind of recognize the routines they recognize in particular the thinking moves that are associated with the routines and they become more in control of those so I, I love this book Ron I want to be this kind of a uh, mentor educator parent um, I want my kids to be in classes with teachers who are making thinking visible. We're in an election cycle. We've just watched uh, events transpire in Chicago. Uh, you don't really address policy matters in the book, but do you have thoughts about education policy that come from the, the, your uh, work here? Well, you know, there, there are I think a lot of kind of connections that we we can make. Um, one of the um, kind of chief axioms that we use in the Culture of Thinking project is that for classrooms to be cultures of thinking, for students, schools have to be cultures of thinking for teachers. And lots of other people have written on the policy front about the importance of um, teacher professional development and teacher ongoing learning. And so I think that there's a real kind of connection there to think about, you know, how is it that we are building that culture in, in the school so that that kind of trickles down. And I think that, um, I, I mean, I'm very interested to kind of think about how the common core begins to develop and how um, the emphasis kind of on thinking, on um, 
evidential reasoning, which occurs in a lot of um, the aspects of the Common Core, how that also will kind of begin to connect. And, and I think that making thinking visible um, will help teachers begin to think about, well, how is it that they move from, um, you know, a, a system that we've had for about the past 10 years that has really been emphasizing um, just a lot of content, and how do we begin to support students in terms of developing richer um, modes of thinking and beginning to develop understanding. So those are some kind of connections that I see. And you're pretty clear in the book that this isn't exclusively about the classroom. I mean, museums get a fair amount of mention. You talk about the parent response. And I would imagine that the homeschooling community would, would find a lot of benefit from this. I know that for me, I'm on this tour trying to hold conversations around education. And it feels like there's sort of a brilliant connection uh, in helping parents become aware of thinking about thinking, uh, even in their own schooling, identifying moments when they really felt like they were engaged and, and what the thinking is there. Uh, so it's not just about school, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and in the Cultures of Thinking Project, we really, um, part of our definition about what makes something a, a culture of thinking is that we don't even use the word school or classroom, but we say cultures of thinking are places um, in which a group's collective as well as individual thinking is valued, visible, and actively promoted. And so anytime where a group of people come together where learning is a part of what that group is about, then there's the chance to really create a culture of thinking there. Um, recently, um, I've actually been getting a lot of interest from people in business um, around the book and around using the ideas in lots of the learning contexts which happen um, in businesses. So um, families can also be thought about as you know, they are a microculture as well, too. You know, I think the thing with museums, which is quite interesting, is that most museum educators only see their students for 90 minutes. And so when you think about, you know, well, how would you teach? How would you develop a culture in 90 minutes? Um, and interesting is that they really think about, well, if they really think about um, the idea of culture and the idea of you know, there are forces which shape that culture and we can identify those forces and we can then think about how to use those, then it gives them a different way of thinking about what they do in that 90 minutes and really beginning to kind of create that culture there. The story of the 90-minute visit to the Museum of Modern Art is, it was one of my favorite in the book. Um, and we don't have time to cover all of those. And certainly, uh, this is a, I mean, I'm making as high a recommendation as I can for people to buy the book if you're not already a fan, because I noticed in the chat that many people are already fans. Um, and, but we only have a few minutes left. And one thing I would love to hear from you, that uh, just because there's some flavor to it uh, that would, they, someone might not get fully from the book, are the um, common pitfalls and struggles. And I just loved even the names of them, right? The sticky note manias, special of the day, to kill a mockingbird syndrome, death by worksheet. Uh, is there one in particular that would be fun for you to talk about? Um, well, perhaps kind of the, um, the death by worksheet. <laughs> um, that, that teachers are... Um, you know, one of the things about making thinking visible that you have to accept at the front end is, you know, you've got this classroom which, you know, could be 25 students, it could be 35 students, it actually could be 150 students. And if you're going to make thinking visible, you have to recognize how incredibly individualized kind of that is. 
and that means a kind of distilling things into a single you know kind of worksheet you have to begin to kind of take yourself and put yourself kind of in the student's perspective and to think about you know are you really going to get the student's thinking as you've kind of taken the structure of the routine and turned it into um, a worksheet or are you just going to get students filling in responses because they want to be done with the worksheet within that so um, there's a lot of seduction in the worksheets that the teachers feel like they need to be accountable um, that they, the parents want to see what they're doing and they get nervous then when they're kind of just having discussion and there isn't something recorded something written down but the reality is that what's written down is is rarely very rich. I've never, you know, uh, well, very rarely seen um, anyone take a routine and turn them into a worksheet that has all of the richness of the thinking. Certainly, recording sheets can be useful. Um, we use a lot of sticky notes um, to help kind of record ideas to um, do that. But the real richness often comes out in the discussion. And so if you are using a recording sheet, you have to think about, well, that's just to get some initial response and initial ideas down. But we actually want people to be building on one another's ideas, be challenging those ideas, and be advancing those ideas forward. And so the discussions wind up being an incredibly important aspect of that. One of the things that I wished in reading the book was that there was an audio version because I've, I didn't have time to go through all of the thinking routines um, and wanted to talk. Well, I would love to listen to them, and, and um, there isn't, I, I didn't see an audio version available. Um, but in the thinking routines, one of the questions that I, I asked, knowing that it might be there and I just missed it, um, David Lurcher in the library world talks a lot about the big think, which is the processing afterwards on projects and assignments of kind of what you know, what took place in the thinking that was involved. Do you mention that and and or do you like it or not? Hmm. Um, well, that kind of reflection can be useful, but we also I think have to be careful about how we we structure that. That. Um, Early on when we were doing our, our work in Sweden, we conducted some surveys of, of students both in the U.S. as well as in, in Sweden about the kinds of thinking they were asked to do in school. The number one type of thinking students identified was reflection. And then we asked them about um, the utility of different kinds of thinking. And at the bottom of the list of being useful was reflection. And that's because a lot of reflection that happens in schools um, isn't it's merely kind of a reporting you know it's going through what one just did and one of the things that will make reflection more powerful is that we're more forward um, looking for that um, I think it's Dylan Willem who in talking about giving people feedback is rather than feedback we really need to feed forward and so if we use reflection in a more forward-looking way that's more powerful um, we do have a, a routine in there that's um, aimed at, at a powerful kind of reflection and in particular it's about uncovering um, assumptions that you didn't even know you had about the topic or the events and, and that routine is called I used to think now I think and that routine is done at the end of an experience whether it be a learning unit or whether it be a field trip or whatever and being able to recognize how one's thinking has shifted and moved and what prior assumptions you might have kind of over time within that. Um, 
that routine was also picked up recently by um, Richard Elmore at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he wrote um, or edited an entire book using that routine. The book is called I Used to Think Now, I think, in which he invited 20 leading educators to reflect on how their ideas about um, schooling and school reform have changed um, over the course of their careers. Fascinating. Ron, I'm sorry that our timing has, has been so curtailed because of the early technical difficulties. There's one question I've been asking every guest for a couple of months now, and, and I'm curious as to your, your thinking on it. Um, businesses are increasingly telling us that they're looking for every student, everybody who comes out of school, to be innovative, creative, and to be an independent thinker. And this is sort of now our new assumption of the post-industrial expectation for serving every student in this way. Um, at the same time, it feels like there may be some tension with a, a, a voting populace who are all independent thinkers. Do you feel like there's a tension there that we're going to experience, or, or is that a non-issue? Um, I don't actually feel like that's you know the, the, the issue that you know um, I think the, the polarization that maybe you're kind of alluding to there isn't necessarily a result of kind of being um, independent, that that polarization might actually be more characterized as groupthink rather than individual thinking, um, that we, um, you know, we, we now with technology and with media, we have access to news reports that, you know, just confirms our view and our perspective within that. So um, if we're independent, and I think that the idea of being um, an independent um, learner um, and being um, is, is different than kind of a broad notion of just being independent, being one's own, you know, person or free thinker within that. Um, and I think that that idea of being a, a, what businesses are often describing as someone who's more of a, a self-starter, someone who can, you know, who can work on their own, but no one so, solely works on their own. They need to also know when they need input, when they need um, feedback from other people as well. Ron, as a courtesy to our guests, we always finish on time. Uh, thanks for being patient with the uh, early lags and for switching to the telephone. Uh, for those of you who have been uh, participating, sorry that we didn't get the Q&A. Um, if you would like to download Ron's slides, you can do so by going up to File, Save. Uh, we didn't get to those slides, but they are in the slide deck, and you can save the whiteboard. Uh, tomorrow night, the true history of the MOOC, and on Thursday, Thomas Vanderar. Ron, thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure, Steve. Really appreciate your, your patience. <laughs> really love the book, Making Thinking Visible. Highly recommended. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. And thanks again. Bye, Ron. Bye.